I woke up out of a dream the other night, I think just about three nights ago, and I wanted to tell you about it because I can't get it out of my head. It keeps coming back to me over and over again. And uh, in this dream, a couple had triplets, right? And you know how dreams never start at the beginning? Have you ever noticed that? A dream always starts in the middle of things. You don't get any backstory. You don't know what's going on. So I don't know what was happening. Only the father was present in all this, so I don't know if uh, his wife died in childbirth or what happened. But here he is with these triplets, and he's saying that he, there's no way that he can raise these babies all by himself. So he puts them up for adoption. And a couple agrees to um, adopt these triplets. And again, the way dreams are, I'm watching this happen. But I'm also thinking that the couple is me and Marion, that because I'm identifying with them, I'm feeling what they're feeling, even though I'm sort of watching this whole thing transpire. And so this couple, or me and Marion, agree to adopt these triplets. And as soon as the adoption is final, it is learned that all three of the babies are blind. And... Uh, the husband is furious, and he accuses the, the father of knowing this before he put the children up for adoption. Now, the doctors step in, and they say that there's this procedure that they can do to repair the optic nerves on the children, and, and of course, it's not guaranteed. There's a chance it won't work. There's a chance it may. You know, and this is not good enough for the husband. He is still raging around and he wants to sue and he wants to have the adoption annulled or at least he wants it all contingent on the success of the procedure. And his wife looks at him and she says, you know, when you have a baby, the baby comes out and it's yours. You don't know what it is you're going to get. Maybe there's some tests you can do, but you really just don't know. That baby comes out, it's yours, and you can't give it back. And she says, you know, you, she's talking to her husband, you are an entrepreneur. You have started businesses up from the ground over and over again. You of all people should know that a life that is not being lived in risk is not being lived at all. And then I woke up. <laughs> Felt a little gypped. I told this to Mary, and she says, but I want to know the ending of the dream. <laughs> you know, isn't it, it, I don't know. Do you all have dreams like this? I mean, this is just, this is so involved. Normally, you don't remember dreams, but I guess because I was thinking about it so much, it's kind of in there now. But a life that's not being lived in risk is not being lived at all. And, you know, whether the how the ending of the dream would have taken place, you know, what the decision finally was, is really not the point, is it? Leaving it as a non-answer kind of turns it over to us, puts the choice on us. What would you do in a situation like that? I know what you're going to say. You never would have gone for triplets in the first place, right? And who in their right mind would go for triplets? Right? But I can't get this dream out of my head. I, it keeps coming back to me. And really, it's all about the risk. It's all about risk. The truth is, and here's the truth, we are all at risk Every moment since our first breath in the womb, we were at risk. Now, some of you have heard about my, uh, my skydiving story. If you haven't, you're just not going to hear it today either. But <laughs> suffice it to say, yeah, that's for another time. And, uh, and there's a chapter in the book that you can read, too, if you want. It was an amazing experience. But suffice it today to say that at one point in my wayward life, 
I agreed to jump out of a perfectly good airplane at 12,500 feet. And um, I, what I realized, there was an insight that came to me about the whole day. It was kind of a growing insight. But what I realized was, is that we are all free-falling. Right now, as you sit here in this room, we're all free-falling. We've been free-falling since the moment of our birth. Since the moment that we were pushed out of our mother's fuselage, huh? right? We have been free-falling ever since to the moment or the ground of our death. And there's nothing we can do about that. Can't get back in the plane, right? We are along for this ride. You could say that we didn't ask for it. Maybe we did, who knows, but we don't remember that. The point is, like a dream, you don't remember the beginning of it, but here we are free-falling. And the only question is, how are we going to meet the ground of our death? Is it going to be kicking and screaming in abject terror at 120 miles an hour? Or is it going to be with a nice flare where you just break the sail and step into the ground like you step out of bed in the morning? That's really the question. How are we going to do this? See, the question isn't whether we can live without risk. The question is whether we accept the risk of simply being alive, of just sitting here and breathing. Any security that we think we have is an illusion. There is no security. Now, we pile things up around us. We'll pile up money. We'll pile up material goods to try to give us a hedge against the threats that we see or the ones that we can imagine. But when it comes right down to it, I mean, has it dawned on you how frail we really all are, how at risk we really all are, that anything can happen at any moment, no matter how deep your bunker is, no matter how big your bank account is, anything can happen at any moment. We're here literally at the grace of God. We're here literally as vulnerable and frail dependents, but we don't want to see it that way. That's too frightening for us, and so we build up all these illusions. I realized, as I was thinking about the dream over the last few days, that it reminded me of the book of Job, which we just talked about last week, right? In that there was this dialogue, this dialectic going back and forth between the husband and the wife, just as there were between Job and his friends throughout the book of Job. You know, these opposing ideas that were being discussed and were clashing against each other. And also, like a dream, in the book of Job, there's no backstory. We don't know how Job got to be so wealthy. How did he amass his wealth? Was he born into it because his father was rich? We don't know how that happened. We just know that he was very wealthy at the beginning of the story. And this is Satan's accusation before God about him, that Job never really knew risk. He never really knew what it was like to live in risk or to lose. And if he were put at risk, then he would curse God to his face. That was the whole point and the whole wager that was being waged up in heaven. So, Job is managing risk. That's something that is indisputable if you look at his life. He's not going to curse God to his face, but he was working to manage his risk with his wealth, with his family, with being righteous, with following all the rules, with being 
completely uh, you know, observant to his God. That's how he was managing the risk. That's the way he understood the world. If he did all these things right, then things should come back to him in this particular way. And there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. We want to be righteous. We want to be uh, pledging allegiance to our God in the sense that we are living in concert with the love that our God actually is. So we need to do that. We need to prepare for the future. We need to be responsible. But at the same time that we're doing all that, are we balancing it? Are we also accepting the risk and the frailty that is our human nature? Or are we imagining somehow that we can beat the odds? Are we imagining somehow that by willing to take big risks in an attempt to grow big enough to become risk-free, that we can actually pull that off? have to think about that for a second. Because at some point in our lives, and I'm sure it's already happened to most of us, like Job, the risk is going to catch up with us. It's going to catch up to us all. And when it does, and when that loss occurs, what then? What happens then? Like Job, we can have our tantrum, we can have our pity party, you know, and we talked about the irony of the patience of Job because he had his tantrum and he had his pity party, right? And you can go through, and we need to go through all the necessary steps of grief, the grief over the loss that we are really feeling. And we're going to ask why. Why, God? Why is this so? Why does this have to happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? But when we are finally and fully confronted with what we can't know, remember God from the whirlwind, right? speaking from the mystery, from the uncontrolled chaos, from the power that we will never understand, are we going to react the way Job did? That's a question to ask ourselves. And we can't maybe truly know the answer until we're actually there. But take a look at how Job answers. At Job 40, starting at verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant, Don't you love that? I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. This is the genius of Job. This is why he got a book, right? Not because he didn't react badly in the beginning, like any one of us would have, but when he was finally confronted by what he can't know, when God finally got it across to him, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? How can I explain to you what's going on here? How can you possibly understand? When Job finally realized that just to accept life as life is without understanding, as the move toward trust was what he needed to accomplish, then he was able to fall back into this place, to realize that risking big is just another attempt at control to build these businesses, to build these great things, and to risk in that way is just another attempt at control, another attempt to try to minimize and manage risk. And as the prophet in Ecclesiastes said, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's a striving after the wind. It's not going to work. So Job realizes this. He realizes that the greater risk that we take And the only one that's going to ever make sense out of life, the way life presents, 
when bad things happen to good people is by risking small, not risking big, risking small, to let go of trying to understand, or let go of trying to control everything, to embrace and own our own insignificance, our vulnerability, our frailty, as the only way to get to trust. Because once we get to trust, everything changes. To risk being small, to risk being who we actually are, is what it comes down to. To stop trying to imagine that we're anything else, but to actually risk being small, and then thereby finding out that we are infinitely loved in our smallness. Now, there's three weeks to Christmas at this point. And in all the noise of a big holiday that's coming up, are we going to be able to find out what Christmas has for us truly? How can Christmas help us in this run-up to Christmas that we're experiencing right now? I wanted to read just a little bit of a, a journal entry and see if I can make a point here with you. I took my two-year-old son on a walk through a nature reserve near our house one Sunday afternoon. Couched way down in the sling of the stroller, he looked small and far away. All I could see of him was the wind ruffling through the fine hair on the top of his head as I alternately watched the landscape and the footpath, making sure that I was guiding the wheels over the safest and smoothest route. Moving deeper into the hills, the path narrowed as mustard plants overgrew along the sides, rising chest and neck high, covered with their tiny yellow flowers. I could see the path curving off, disappearing into the overgrowth, and then reappearing farther down the hill. In the middle distance below us, there were housing tracks, the parking lot, a road alive with traffic, and the far distant mountains as backdrop. All the familiar sights and sounds of my world aligned in a comforting glance. The path had grown narrow enough that the stroller was now parting the mustard stalks as we pushed through. And as I looked down at my son, I realized that he had gone unnaturally quiet and still. I could sense his focus and concentration right through the top of his little head and look down the path toward what may have been holding his attention when a sudden thought struck me. I bent way down, almost doubled over, and held my face at the same level as his, continuing to push through what magically had changed from mustard bushes to tall trees with their yellow tops high over my head. The whole scene instantly transformed from a narrow footpath on a nearby hill to a mysterious road deep in the forest. We could have been hundreds of miles from the nearest sign of anything that seemed familiar and safe. I could imagine we were traveling a hobbit road through Middle Earth, that horses with armored riders would come thundering around the next curve at any moment, filling the scene with flying clumps of earth, flared nostrils, and the glint of hardened metal. By simply lowering my position, I had left the world with which I was so familiar and comfortable and had entered a new one, the world of my child, a world viewed from only three feet off the ground, where even a rutted footpath could hold any promise or possibility. I had been given just a glimpse of whatever it was my boy was seeing in all its newness and mystery. 
But it was enough to begin to understand. Lowering my point of view, lowering your point of view, changes everything. The world looks different from three feet off the ground, from three feet high. You ever thought about how you find something that was lost by a child? child loses something and you want to find it, you know what you got to do? You got to get down on your knees and look at the room from three feet off the ground and suddenly you're going to see all these little nooks and crannies that you don't see from five or six feet up. You know, you got to get down there. You ever thought about why people get uh, so depressed at Christmas time? What is it about the holidays? What is it about Christmas time that creates this depression, this feeling of emptiness? I think it's because we learned Christmas, we processed Christmas from a viewpoint three feet off the ground, and we continue to try to recreate it from a viewpoint five or six feet off the ground, and we can't find it. It's not there. You want to reinvestigate Christmas? Come back down to three feet off the ground, and everything can change at that point. You see, Jesus started small like every single one of us. Take a look how Paul describes Jesus starting small at Philippians 2, starting at verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? To be held onto, to be dammed up but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what did Jesus do? He risked starting small, as an infant, as a child. And throughout his life, he never stopped being childlike. Even as he grew up physically, he retained that quality. And then beyond just being a helpless infant, the Gospels give us these details. He was lying in a manger. They're talking about abject poverty. He didn't just come here as a helpless infant. He came as one who was poor, who was powerless, who was marginalized in his class, He was invisible to the world, invisible to the authorities. He was insignificant. He risked starting small, something that is so frightening for every one of us to do. In other words, Jesus was anavim. We've talked about this word before. The Hebrew word anavim comes from the root word anav, which means to bow down. And so the Anavim were the lowly, they were the poor, but at the same time they were marginalized and they were even oppressed. They were aware of the condition that they were in, but without any resentment. They accepted the position they were in. And it allowed them to be completely reliant on God because there was really no place else they could see in their lives where they were going to get the provision that they needed. It changed their heart from the inside out. The Jews looked at it as as the ideal spiritual condition, the anavim. It was an external condition for these people who were physically poor, physically marginalized, that became internalized as an attitude of humility, as an attitude of poverty, even if they were rich. 
A rich person can be anavim, although it's really difficult to do. That's what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to become anavim, for a rich person to become kingdom. It's really hard to do. Not impossible, but it's very difficult. Jesus' metaphors, the ones that he used over and over again to try to get through to his followers, the nature of kingdom, the nature of this only way back to the Father. Think about the ones that he used. He used a gardener. Gardeners all the time, right? Young brides, young Hebrew drives, 12 or 13-year-old girls, children, shepherds, fishermen, servants, all of them, anavim. All of them, those that wouldn't even be regarded by those who were so invested in the status quo. And all of this that Jesus does, all the teaching, all of the metaphors he uses are all pointing to a spiritual truth. What truth? That who we really are, every single one of us, is Anavim. That's who we were born to be. And that's who we really are. When you strip away everything that we accrue to ourselves, who we all are underneath is frail, vulnerable, dependent. And if we can be that and be celebratory at the same time to have a sense of gratitude, guess what? We are kingdom. We are on this way that Jesus is talking about. What is Richard Rohr? Actually, it's Brennan Manning, one of my heroes. I had a trinity of heroes when I was coming up. It was Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen, Brennan Manning, right? And Brennan Manning writes, he's being quoted by Rohr here, humility and honesty are really the same thing. A humble person is, a, is simply a brutally honest person about the whole truth. You and I came along a few years ago. We're going to be gone in a few years. The only honest response to life is a humble one. And then Rohr chimes in. Alcoholics Anonymous offers a classic definition of humility. Stark, raving honesty. Not bad, huh? Humility is honesty. It's being honest about who we really are. That we're small. That we're fragile. Being honest and being accepting of the relationship that we actually have with each other and with God. Accepting our actual nature, accepting our actual identity that we were born into as human beings. Doing that is the only way to live an authentic human life. Nothing else is authentic. It's the only way to live a life in relationship is to be absolutely clear about who we are and how we relate and what that relationship looks like. Like the gardener of Jesus' metaphor, we are all powerless to make the transformation happen, to make the miracle happen. Jesus tells the great story about the farmer who goes out and plants everything, gets everything ready, waters, does it all, and then he just goes home and goes to bed, takes a nap. And when he wakes up the next morning, that little sprout is poking its head through the soil. The miracle happened while he's sleeping. We as gardeners, we as human beings are powerless to make the miracle happen. We can't make the transformation happen. But what we can do is show up every day to do the work. We can show up faithfully every day to put our relationships together. We can do that much. But we don't actually make it happen. And our egoic minds hate this. 
with a passion. They hate this. They put up illusions of control, gather wealth and and power and prestige to itself to try to imagine that we have some control over this, that we can actually make things happen. But we can never be present to God and we can never be present to each other until we realize and accept who we really are, until we are liberated into the truth, a truth that then liberates us further. Take a look at Psalms 131. This is actually the third shortest psalm in the book of Psalms. This is the whole psalm right here. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Beautiful description, poetic description of this letting go, accepting our human nature, our smallness, risking being that in what appears to be a hostile world. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. Think about the three temptations that he underwent there. Right? Turn the stones into bread to bow down before Satan in order to have control over the kingdoms of the world, to throw himself down from the parapet of the temple, to be borne up by angels right in front of the adoring crowds. What he was doing was putting down all of these human drives to try to imagine the control that we really don't have. Power, relevance, to be spectacular. All these things are what we use to stave off the fear of the risk that we feel when we are who we are, which is small. Jesus had to go into the wilderness and spend the time that it took to put these two down. And when he came back to his home, his entire message, which we are calling the contemplative practice, the contemplative spirituality, this way of the anavim that we're talking about today, is about finding life by losing it, finding treasure by selling everything that you have. It's always paradoxical because we think that we need to risk big in order to get these great things out of life. And the truth of the matter is, if our treasure is in heaven, then we're going to need to risk small and enter into that scary space in order to understand what is really going on in life. Jesus risked being small. He started his life, just like every one of us, being small. Jesus was born physically on a beam, and then he never left being spiritually on a beam. He never stopped risking small never stopped risking being on a beam. He carried an attitude of the gardener. He carried the attitude of the child, the servant. He carried the attitude of Job at the end of the book. Complete reliance on God without understanding, ceding all illusion of control, just dependent on the Father. As Jesus' fame and his influence grew, He remained materially poor and poor in spirit, which is that attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. 
Jesus remained always in gratitude, always in humility, always in service, in wonder, at play, always with a sense of humor. He never allowed himself to become a victim of his poverty, but he was never shamed by his poverty either. It was part of who he was. He celebrated it. He was empowered. He was liberated from the need for control. He was liberated from the need for certainty. He was liberated from the need for risk management. And yes, he had his group, and they had their treasury, and they had to eat, and they did all those things, but he kept it all in perfect balance. See, Christmas is about small, hidden beginnings of something that becomes huge, small. It's like chaos theory. You familiar with chaos theory? You know, small changes in input yield huge changes in output. Butterfly flaps its wings in uh, Beijing and it snows in New York City. That's the idea here. Something small, something hidden in Christmas becomes this huge thing. Jesus talked about the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But when it grows, it grows into this huge tree and all the birds can shelter in its branches. He talks about the leaven, you know, just a little bit. But it leavens the whole lump of flour, the whole dough. All you need is this tiny beginning that grows into something huge. What is hidden, what is unassuming, has huge effects, even as it remains hidden and remains unassuming and remains humble. If you want to find something hidden by a child, you've got to get on your knees. You've got to get small. And if you want to find something hidden by a child like God, you got to get on your knees. you got to lower your point of view. Christmas is the story of Jesus' birth, but it's also the story of our rebirth. For us to be reborn really is about risking small. To be reborn is to risk being small. And when we are reborn, we are retelling the Christmas story in our own lives. To be able to empty ourselves of all the illusions of grandeur, of control, of power. To take the form and the attitude of the servant. To realize that everything that we can accomplish and everything that we can acquire is vanity. It's meaningless in and of itself. And it's the riskiest thing that we will ever do in this life to risk small, not risk large. One more bit from that journal entry. Being reborn tears us from everything we know and think we understand. It takes from us all the comforting and familiar things we have piled up around ourselves in the effort to feel bounded and held and in control. It seems to require so much to us so much of us, so much loss that we resist as long as we can. But rebirth doesn't take from us anything we actually possess and offers back everything we already do. If we can find our way not to simply give up, stop resisting, but to truly surrender and take that first step, our rebirth will open the rest of the way to immense new experience full of the adventure and exhilaration of possibilities we didn't even know existed. From the other side of his rebirth, Yeshua looks up at us from the standing height of a child, 
from the kneeling height of a servant at our feet, saying that what he has done, we can do, and greater things than these. There he is, way down there, with the wind combing through his hair, beckoning with his broad, blinding smile, and speaking with the unmistakable ring of the truth that makes us free, because in all of our powerlessness, there is one power we do possess, the power to choose to hitch our strollers to the power greater than ourselves, the only power that can take us where we really want to go. The truth that the way to healing is actually down and not up, a letting go rather than an acquisition, an admission of vulnerability, a lowering of imagined position, is just too frightening to accept as long as we believe we have any power left to defend. You know, it's ironic. It's, it's actually beyond ironic. It's scandalous that we are being asked by God to lower our point of view down to God's perspective. He's not saying raise it up. He's saying lower it down to my perspective. Our God risks being small. Our God is an unassuming God, a humble God. If Jesus and the Father are one, and this is who Jesus is, and the Father is that too, and that just blows our mind, doesn't it? To look down at Jesus as the standing height of a child, the kneeling height of a servant. But this smallness has huge effects that we will miss unless we kneel down as well. Like Job, accept our smallness, accept our insignificance, risk small ourselves, and in that smallness, find the love that couldn't be bigger. It's the only way. Jesus told us it's the only way. And he tried image after image to get us to accept everything that it would take for us to get the first steps along this way placed. There's a story that I like to read every Christmas. And every Christmas, I don't quite get through it without getting a little emotion. Let's see if I can do it this time. How about that? It's called Trouble at the Inn. And it follows on to what we've been talking about. So settle back for just a second. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he. Though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation if the uncoordinated Wally asked to play ball with them. Most often, they'd find a way to keep him off the field. But Wally would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, can't they stay? They're no bother. 
Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year. But the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yuletide extravaganza of the staffs and the creches of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time, Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into a painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting. What do you want, Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we've asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room in this inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She's so tired. Now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the stage. No, Wally repeated, automatically be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head on his shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. Don't go, Joseph, Wally Kite cried out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. <laughs> How do you recover from that, right? Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. This is the ultimate anavim. Do we have to let the underdeveloped among us hold the title of anavim? Do we have to look down at them as not being fully developed? Or can we see in them the qualities that we need so desperately ourselves, the qualities that Jesus is trying to instill in us as the only ones that can take us to the Father, the only ones that can put us in right relationship where we know that we are loved with a love that we could never give ourselves and we can face the difficulties and the risks of life with gratitude at the same time. Wally and Jesus were born on Avim, just as every single one of us are. But Wally and Jesus never grew out of it. We need to grow back in. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for everything in our lives that instructs. 
Make us as students be ready when the teacher appears. From wherever he, she, it appears. Especially from directions that we don't expect. Help us to be open to be taught. To learn something new. Whether it's from a dream or whether it's from a child or a teacher that we can see the truth in what's being presented to us, especially if it's something that makes us uncomfortable, especially if it's something that offends, especially if it's something that we resist initially. Help us to pay attention there most consciously, most intentionally, to see what it is that's unfinished in ourselves so that we can take another step closer to you so we can let go of the risk that we feel and the fear that we feel that is keeping us from our relationship with you and everyone else. This Christmas, Father, help us to see what the story is really trying to get across and how that is absolutely relevant to what's happening in our lives right now. Help us to feel that connection so that we can move in these last few weeks of Christmas season, closer to you and each other. And Father, thank you. Thank you for being an unassuming God and for teaching us all that that can bring. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.